welcome everybody to the panel with the title It's Time for Plan B. We're looking at the future. With me, I have a very august panel who maybe would like to introduce themselves. Thank you to your money for putting on this panel in these extraordinary times. Honoured to be here. I'm Andrew Cohen. I'm the executive chairman of the private bank of JP Morgan. I sit in London. I'm also an executive chairman of the investment bank of JP Morgan. Pleasure to be here. Hi, uh, welcome as well from me. Uh, my name's Nigel Green. I'm the CEO of Devere. We're a financial advisory company with offices all over the world uh, that specialise in advice to expatriates and indeed high net worth individuals. Hi, good morning, everybody. Greg Lim, partner at KPMG. I'm the global head of family office and private client at KPMG, based in London. And thanks for putting on this event, Louise. Good morning, everybody. I'm Michel Longini. I'm the CEO for private banking for the Edmond Rothschild Group, pure private bank and asset manager. I'm based in Geneva. Very happy to be with you today. Thank you so much for having me in this wonderful panel. I am Beatrice Forti. I'm a partner at Burgess Salmon. I'm the head of Proud Wealth. I am an international tax and trust partner at the firm. Thanks very much, everybody. Just to kick things off, given that we're looking at what's plan B, I wanted to ask everybody what's the single biggest change you've seen in the investing world since the onset of, of the pandemic earlier this year? Um, so, uh, if anyone would like to jump in on that one. Uh, for me, the, the, the major theme this, uh, due, to, due to COVID has been the extreme sector selectivity. Uh, we have markets who have been um, we have certain sectors who are at all-time highs and certain sectors who are in a virtual coma or, uh, or extreme uh, uh, low price. So I think the selectivity due to the extreme liquidity in the market is certainly the most uh, important impact. It was not a crisis where everything went down. It's yeah. a crisis where the selectivity has been, has been the rule. And Louise, I just add to Michelle, t totally agree with Michelle. The underlying issue is that um, actually some things haven't changed and the concept of being diversified has really been the key uh, to getting through this crisis. As Michelle outlined, we've seen new highs and uh, just in the last 10 days, we've seen a number of new highs in the S&P and the NASDAQ. Now that obviously came off at the end of last week. We're going to continue to see large amounts of volatility through this market. But if you're not invested, you've missed out on all those regains from the lows. The concept of diversification, uh, in including rotation through those asset classes with these unprecedented times has never been more apparent to us as the best advice, uh, particularly with um, broad-minded global investors. As you say, selectivity and diversification, but clearly there's different risk appetite across the spectrum. Some people are very risk averse, some people are you know, embracing risk, and some people are approaching a mix of the two, i.e. staying in cash but, but keeping themselves liquid so they can jump in when opportunities present themselves. Um, how are panellists seeing investors across that spectrum? Are most people adopting a mixed approach or are you seeing more um, conservatism or, or, or more risk appetite? I'd say that we're seeing uh, a variety. So I think it's kind of strongly people have got an opinion. They either see it as a fantastic opportunity now um, or they want to stay in cash and they're looking for the opportunity, yeah. which of course has been very, very dangerous. Um, 
unfortunately, if you wait for it, particularly in this market, it's been so fast that it's moved before you get the chance to actually invest. So you've had one sector that certainly have been looking for the opportunity, but often missed it. And then you had a third sector that really wants to be cautious um, and understandably, but I've never seen such a split of investors where there's strong opinions, that direction, that one mm. and, and, and the other side. And Andrew's absolutely right. You, you need some diversification. You shouldn't be looking just to jump into the market. And I think this particular time has proven that more than ever. Yeah. So as an advisor looking at clients, not from the investment point of view, but sort of as recipient of information from the bankers, I completely agree with Nigel's. And also I found that the clients with more sophisticated clients have not panicked. They've sat down. They, they, they sat tight and they, they actually geared up to take advantage of the situation. The less sophisticated clients, some of them have panicked. And, uh, and then I had to sit with, the, uh, with you and, uh, and the clients to, to calm them down and to say, okay, wait a second. Just... So there's been a very, as you say, completely mixed. Yes. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with what Beatrice is saying there in terms of what we're seeing the clients. We're not seeing the panic like we did in the financial crash of 2007, 2008. But what we are now starting to see is clients emerging out of this and looking for opportunity. And I think a lot of those opportunities will now come outside of the conventional capital markets into private investments, into, into other types of investment like that. We've seen a huge change of shifting views on property, for example. You know, clients with large property portfolios who thought they were, you know, they, they, they were ready-made and set are now thinking, actually, is this you know, the asset class that we should be featuring heavily in yeah. back yeah. into the diversification point? Are you seeing the split there where you've got um, some people looking at what I'd call traditional companies and they see value there? So, you know, those things are going to recover, whereas other people really see this is a new future. It's the tech. And, uh, and, and I've got that split certainly from, from yeah, our investors. I, I think it's both, Nigel. The clients we tend to, yeah, we all tend to deal with are the successful ones and success generally breeds success. So they know when to look for opportunity. And I think opportunity comes in in many shapes and forms. It could be that it's yeah, it's a new opportunity to invest in a new market, a new trend, a new issue, versus just taking advantage of somebody else's misfortune and having yeah, having capital that they can deploy and utilize to, to good effect. Private so I, I think it's a real mixture of the two. I agree. Private equity is definitely something that more and more clients are looking at. Yeah. And, yeah. and private equity opportunities. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Maybe in terms of strategy... Uh, I think the right thing to do, as usual, was to, to have a mix of safety and be staying invested. But as uh, all panelists were saying, I think we have seen quite extreme uh, behavior of people who really panicked, uh, in particular at the end of March. Last week of March, was, was we saw the typical panic movements in the market. Uh, but the right thing to do was to balance this, as uh, Andrew was saying, to stay diversified. And most of all, I think there was... As the, the cri this crisis so far, at least, has been, a, we looked at, uh, would it be a W shape, a L shape, a U shape <laughs> from day one? Yeah. At the end, so far, it looks like a V shape, if you look at the market. And it means that having a proper balance and uh, staying invested and hedging properly some of the most important risks in the portfolios was the right strategy. Yeah. But we have seen this mix, this very specific mix where really people panicked and people said, look, it's, it's nothing. 
let's uh, let's go and uh, even they invested because of liquidity into specific sectors like technology. And Michelle, it could even be a K shape where people have very differing yeah. views of where we're going. Yeah. So Maybe it's a K shape. <laughs> I would add to the, the comments that, uh, that Greg made around 2008, 2009. If we think where we started 2020, um, the Australian bushfires were raging. We were very focused on climate change. There was a 16-year-old Swedish girl that was occupying daily front-page news coverage. At Davos, she was one of the main events, and she came on just before Trump. Um, that has disappeared from the media side as we battled COVID and markets. What has not been uh, removed from investors' mindsets is that whole concept of ESG and how am I deploying my capital? Because what we're learning is there's a lot of purposefulness coming into the discussion, whether it's in the US, reurbanization, rebuilding programs, you know, re-education programs, trying to get this social map in a, in a new inclusive world that we all need to focus on, whether it's the environmental issues, whether it's the healthcare issues. And I think when we mentioned tech and these diverging uh, areas of private markets, you are seeing more and more, particularly generation two, having a big focus on, you know, what is the purposefulness for this investment theory, right? And does it have an E component? Does it have an S component? And does it have a G component? to make sure that it's filling our family values along with an investment thesis. That, I think, is a very positive change, right? And I think coming out of this crisis where collectively, and it's really interesting going through something like the working from home scenario, you feel sorry for certain people when you talk to them and you realise, oh, I'm in the same boat. We all globally have been in the same boat. We're on a Zoom call now. Um, some of us may be in offices, but the majority of people have been doing this for the last five months, not being able to see loved ones, not being able to travel, not being able to do the things we want to do. We have to react, and that's coming through in an investment thesis as well. I think also with ESG, it, it's popular, Andrew, but also you haven't lost the performance this year, right? whereas previously you would have had to lose performance to invest in ESG. Now, actually, you look at it and Absolutely. performance. To, to the contrary, companies are being looked at on the investor landscape as what is there in the myriad of factors. And, and you look at the, the makeup of the S&P 500, what uh, I think Greg and Michelle both referred to, um, the companies that have purposefulness, I'll get that word right, and that have inclusion. And look, we can't escape the, the diversity issues. We at JP Morgan, a global firm, 250,000 people. It couldn't be more front and centre, the issues of diversity right and it's across gender race religion doesn't matter what the issue is that is the world and particularly i want to be respectful of my co-panelists but the younger generations right are absolutely focused on so we've just brought in our new analyst batch in june and we've kept all their jobs they were the first people ever to get a job here that never never have seen an office right they've all done it from home but their focus is on inclusion and diversity as much as it is on the intimate details that we go through about finance from a, again, from an advisory point of view, it's interesting how the ESG is being used by families, and I don't know what Greg thinks, but by families to involve the, the, the younger generation into the wealth of the family, sometimes creating charitable uh, vehicle that then will be the one that is going to invest in ESG uh, uh, compliant investments, and they're going to drive, and it's being used by the older generation to start them up, to get them interested also, because they are the generation who are really, truly interested in this. And the diversity and uh, all impact investing, I'm finding it that is very much one way to, to get the younger generation involved. So it, it links in with understanding, and I am seeing that uh, throughout my families and also family offices. So in the family in the office. 
the pandemic has perhaps increased our, uh, this uh, focus and this it has been a great occasion for for many families that, have, that we are managing today to really include because they were staying at home together for, yeah. for the, some I, I, I think that's, the first, yeah. maybe for the first time because the usually the the, the business owners are very uh, out of uh, home and for the first time they were at home with their second generation yeah. and we have had a long list of people who have said look this, that's the first time we have time and we have an occasion and the pandemic is also something that brings yeah. you to think about the future and to include the real values about the the, comp the company and the, the family and this is something we have seen quite a lot as well in in, uh, in our firm to all these families who have taken that opportunity to uh, really change and include and have a real uh, invest global investment strategy for for their family and the next generation I, I would take that point Michelle and just say that yeah what I've seen and echoing what what Beatrice was saying that there's a real reflective element what's gone on with our clients across many many lenses at the moment in terms of what's there it's you know, even down to what you know sometimes is the purpose of the wealth which then brings in those discussions with the next generation which is fueling those esg and you know wider impact around what's going on through to actually you know what's going on and what is the you know what do i want to do with this wealth now is it you know can i put it to better use myself in terms of what it can do to respond to yeah, to climatic change or to yeah, or, or to societal change, and equally, do I really need this wealth? Yeah, I'm sat here in my house. I can't spend it. I can't fly in my private jet. I can't go enjoy life on my private yacht. Yeah, what am I doing with this? And I think these whole things are bringing a period of reflection uh, amongst well, our lockdown, lockdown makes you reflect on family and re reflect yeah. on your financial situation. I mean, we're lucky to be in the wealth business, aren't we, really? Because our industry has still been able to give advice and look after people in, in this yeah. time. But people definitely reflect on their families and change their values to some extent or reassess them. Uh, somebody actually said to me, perhaps they should lock down once every year. Okay, I said, yeah, it's probably a good idea, but I really don't want them to do it. Good or, good or bad for them. But there are some benefits. There are some benefits. People have time to, to, to organize things. And you're right. We've all been very busy in our industry because, you know, the, the very busy businessman who's traveling all the time suddenly was sitting at his desk yeah, yeah. and bored and, and decided to reorganize his affairs. And so also the people came out of the woodwork uh, wanted to do simple things like review their wills or, uh, you know, also because COVID brought to the forefront mortality and, and all of that. And it's a sad thing to say, but if you are a wealthy family or a wealthy businessman, that is very important. So uh, that has been a lot of interesting work, I have to say. Yeah, another element that I think is important to note outside of the public markets and private markets is in operating businesses, and uh, particularly at the beginning of the crisis, um, the willingness of families to pivot and do things that were just extraordinary. And this is globally, we saw. Um, I think Nigel mentioned private planes or somebody mentioned private sitting idly. We had a number of clients using their planes to go and pick up PPE or pick up medicines or transport things that were necessary, particularly in the heat, uh, both in Europe and the US uh, and in Asia, in the heat of the moment, and then into Latin America when, when things were really falling apart, private citizens, changing factory lines from producing X to producing some sort of PPE or medically orientated device, changing alcohol production lines 
compliance to producing sanitizer. And this is all this inclusiveness that we talk about. That was the definitive change from 08 and 09 because then people were focused on their balance sheets, on the public markets and the vitality of the banking system. Now it's the vitality of our entire ecosystem. And I think that ties into these points. And to Beatrice's point, you're sitting at home and you're saying, I've got these assets, how can I better utilize them? Um, fabulous stories you hear about restaurants, for instance, shut down. Right? There's great stories in London and in New York and Milan, and you can go through all the cities, Hong Kong, where restaurants were shut down. They weren't serving regular customers, so they were serving medical workers and hospital workers. These are things that give you some sense of optimism, and it's driven by families. Right? Not to dis discount what corporates were doing, but families were sitting at home saying, I'm going to make my difference. And when that is uh, extrapolated and multiplied, I think it makes a difference. We've got to make sure that is maintained. And as advisors... This 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 issue is going to be a, a continuation of. of, of I think the, the part uh, the part that is included now, and I totally agree with you, Andrew. And, uh, and we have seen that, that in particular the, the, the very important philanthropic activity, which was a thinking process, an ongoing thinking process for many uh, for many uh, clients or many wealthy people, now has become at least for us where we have a very big number of, of foundations we are managing. Uh, it has been become an asset class in the asset allocation where we consider that this has to be uh, a proper something on which we work together with the next generation. Uh, it covers uh, the needs for, for, for climate change or it can be for, for pure charity uh, purposes, but it gives a purpose to the investment and it has been growing very, very significantly during the during this this phase because people were facing with as as, uh, as Beatrice was saying mortality mortality at the very near and very uh, global. And I think this has has been a kind of wake up call for many people who were thinking to do it, but did not go uh, through the process yet. And uh, and now I think the structuring of this part of the asset class is very uh, very common. Have we seen, have we seen a, a, you know, a gain in faith in humanity, but a loss in faith in governments? And of course, we've got uh, uh, Brexit to come and, of course, US election. Uh, and, uh, I've certainly I've seen a loss in faith of the governments. If, if, uh, I mean, if there is a gain in honest, If you were a government, I would not want to be a government head in, in March. It was horrendous. I don't, to be honest, I, no, I mean, apart from one specific person that is involved in the U.S. elections, everybody else were trying to do their best. And, yeah, I think they should have seen it earlier, though. I mean, I did a video on it on YouTube in January talking about Chinese New Year coming up. It's going to spread. And then everybody was surprised in March. I'm not sure if they should have been surprised. I'm, not, I'm, I'm going to be a bit controversial. I think governments in general, handled it badly. I think they were so shocked. I'm Italian, and uh, I live in England, but I'm Italian. And uh, speaking to my Italian colleagues, uh, what happened in Italy was so fast. And Italy has one of the best uh, health systems in the world. They yeah. were just completely shocked and overwhelmed. And uh, you're right, they might have, should have expected it. But I think what happened is that all, it, it, the reason why is in the north, because all the north of Italy is very industrial, and all of the industries are very close linked with China. And all of these people were commuting to China all the time, and they didn't know. I mean, I think fundamentally, I think probably China had it much sooner than we thought. And anyway, is that 
I, I think it's been such an extraordinary, I mean, nobody could have guessed the six months later, look at us. I mean, you know. You relate to the, to the investment side with yeah. issue. I think, I think what is important, it's outside of uh, the way we think or the way we judge the, the way they've been acting is how they act now. Because I think this is really what is as a major change in the investment world will be, uh, first of all, the way they, they, will, uh, they have been uh, borrowing money uh, different, at a huge pace. They have been uh, creating, for example, at the European level, a real capacity to borrow money, which is a, a real economic event, I think. Uh, and now they will be using uh, that kind of money, uh, both on the central bank side to give liquidity and on the other side, and I think that is very major, is the way this plan to uh, boost the economy will be, will be made. Because this will have a huge impact uh, going forward because, uh, because it means that if, for example, I look at what has been announced in, uh, in France or you have, a, you have a big part, for example, of, this, of these plans which are uh, for, uh, for climate change uh, and for uh, uh, eco-friendly type of boosting of the economy. So I think this... Uh, it, 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 I don't know what, how they reacted, but they, have, they are spreading so much money in the, in the world that will impact, I think, uh, the, uh, the return on assets, that we will have the return and the, and the performance that we'll have on the asset class, because these are huge amounts of, uh, of uh, help that have been uh, spread all over the sectors. Yeah, Michelle's right. The combined activity of central bankers in late March and, and early April gave us the platform and the willingness that governments, regardless of their on-the-ground aspects, governments were united in the fact that this needed immediate activity and that gave the markets confidence um, um, it, it, in an extent way greater than it was in 08 and 09 and 10, right, in terms of what we're doing for future generations. So that's a whole other macroeconomic debate. But I would take it away from governments and look at corporates, right, and the way corporates have acted before, during and after this crisis is going to be the foundation stone back to some of our initial comments about what investors are thinking. The way companies pivoted, and you look at the tech industry front, many tech industries are saying to their young employees, you're not coming back till 2021. And those companies are doing incredibly well and booming. Now, they have the advantage that in those particular industries, you don't need necessarily, you're not a restaurant, you're not a hotel, you're not... Do you think they'll ever go back, Andrew? I mean, you know, is this not changed? Some will, some won't. But but I think it's the mindset of, of, and I can only obviously speak to, you know, to to our operating committee and and under under leadership of our firm. We have been very focused on employee and employee safety. We We moved at lightning speed in March to not only move people home and move them in out of harm's way, but things like, you know, we were not using Zoom, by the way, we were using other technologies and we automatically did things that would have taken maybe many years to implement because of necessity. Now we have the problem, right, um, of, you know, how do you move all that back onto the train tracks, right? right? It's going to be an evolution of, there is definitely two debates, right? That's why just like the recovery, there's two debates. People need human interaction in their place of work. Some you know, people younger than us feel that this is human interaction and a digital interaction is the same. <laughs> Great. Um, we, we don't know, but I will say that then for investors to look at that, you need to have one thing and that is a, a willingness of, a, of governments and uh, likewise, uh, people may, managing companies are being able to pivot quickly, right? And that speed of pivoting because your workforce is obviously critical. And this was, you know, all um, politics aside, as Beatrice very clearly pointed out about Northern Italy, this happened so quickly. This is a very serious thing. And you've got to make sure your workforce not only is kept safe, but mentally 
feel that their firm is looking after them. So, you know, if you've got more and more people working from home, uh, certainly when you're looking at commercial property and cities, do people move out of cities? So you could have a, a whole investment theme, which has already developed with technology doing so well, that continues and perhaps some sectors never recover. I think that's back to what I was saying earlier in terms of people moving away from some of that property, you know, property being the, yeah, the holy grail of a lot of people's you know, portfolios and, yeah, and, and a key component part. People are looking at that differently. And yeah, Andrew mentioned the word pivot quite a few times, which is absolutely the point that we're seeing with our clients now. And one of the things that we're starting to see is, yeah, again, as people are starting to emerge from this and, and think about what the future is going to be like, it turns the discussion around to what is going to be the impact of governments in terms of how do they bring that money back into, you know, back in, you know, how do they pay down their own debt? You know, clearly taxation is going to be an issue for that. And this is something that is, is forming a large part of the discussions that I'm sure Beatrice is, is seeing with her clients as well. You know, are the wealthy going to, and, you know, and, and the clients that we, we deal with, are they the ones who are going to have to burden the greater share of the payback? Yeah, rightly so that yeah, the more fortunate in society probably should, but how far do they go with that? And we're now seeing clients looking at their plans and pivoting almost the other way of saying, where do I want to be? Where am I exposed? How can I protect myself? So coming back into some of that yeah, reflective thinking around in terms of what we're doing. And I'm, yeah, and I'm sure that's that's starting to come through on other things. Also, government balance sheet. I mean, you know, if yeah. you look at Europe, the UK started all of this from a, a completely different standpoint from from some southern European countries whose mm-hmm. debt was so huge, and now they borrow themselves. And it was quite interesting looking at the different approach. The UK is, is, is done. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a, obviously I'm not very keen on Brexit, but the UK has reacted to this borrowing and trying to be self-sufficient and helping his own uh, country to come out of this. If you look at the reaction in some European countries, is they've been sitting there waiting for the European Union to bail them up. So they, they didn't, it wasn't, oh, what can I do? But well, was very much, Europe, you need to give us money so we can do something about this. And, uh, and it's a completely different approach. And those countries, banking system, I don't know if you know, but the, the banks in Europe are now being going to businesses, calling in loans, cutting credit lines because they're ter- you know they need money. And uh, when in the UK, you have a complete, this gives me a great uh, sense of comfort about the UK. I think the UK is fundamentally solid when you look at other countries and how they have approached this and how they reacted to this. And, and also the last point is that the difference between 08 and today is that an enormous amount of cash has been pumped into the system when in 08 it was being pumped into the banks. The money has gone into people. Uh, however, it's gone. So hopefully this should make us all come out fairly quickly or quicker than 08. Are you getting more and more questions from clients about potentially moving jurisdiction as they look ahead to what the impact, as, as you said, Greg, on taxation and, and maybe moving assets around in anticipation of the difference in how different governments will effectively refinance themselves? I think yes, in short. But I don't think this is something that has necessarily been brought on by the current crisis we're finding ourselves in with COVID-19. I think, you know, as Beatrice has mentioned a couple of times, Brexit has been written large in a lot of clients thinking, 
um, in terms of what we are, you know, what we've certainly been discussing and seeing from there. And, and that's in equal measures. We're equally, you know, wearing a, a UK hat here and a UK-centric approach. We're seeing a lot of people looking at the UK as a place to come, despite Brexit, despite everything that's there, because, you know, the, you know, the, the access to the capital markets, you know, the reasonably balanced rule of law, everything that goes around what comes in from that is something that we're seeing there. And I think this is something that we've certainly seen an emergence and in a trend and certainly you know, something I've seen in, in the last 10 or 15 years is the movement of the wealthy has been one of the great changes over the, you know, over the course of the 21st century so far. And it's been for a myriad of reasons. And I think that, yeah, this is just another point that we'll see that come in in the next one, two years as people settle down, they see what's happening, they see what the response in their own economy and where, where they live. We'll see them move because if, yeah, if they feel that they are being taxed too heavily, they will move. If they feel that, yeah, that there isn't a place to do business there because it's anti-competitive, they will move. And I think that will just continue. The factors maybe that have influenced that are not strictly, as you said, uh, Greg, it's not driven by, by the COVID. I think in the last uh, 10, 15 years, we have had a big change because I think tax is an important topic, but I think stability of the system and stability of the tax system is perhaps more important. The stability of the countries and the way, I, I must say, Governance is quite important as well. I think some people are yeah. scared by certain type of governance that you see around the world, which are not uh, very, uh, let's say, long-term views and certainly uh, not giving uh, the type of comfort they would have for them and the next generation. So I think the drive uh, is, not, is not strictly related to COVID. It's just increasing that thinking process. And there is a premium for, for places for safety. Uh, I think the climate uh, side is very important you know we have seen in asia in particular in the past i don't know if you remember a few years ago with the the huge haze you know in singapore or the the pollution in in uh, mainland china the combination of a good uh, system good health system good uh, education system and good climate uh, has certainly been a very strong drive for big families very wealthy families to choose a jurisdiction, and in, in this area, I think uh, places including Switzerland, where I stay, are, 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 are still have this premium uh, because I think it gives it gives that kind of safety. So uh, it's not driven by by COVID, but, but the long term plan, as as we said before, you know the thinking process with the family, thinking for the next generation, including ESG and in particular governance at all levels. Uh, as one of the major topics to, to take that kind of decision. I'd agree with that. And I think when we talk about families and, you know, it is plan B, we've seen through the first half of the year, 33 real estate markets globally in positive territory. Now, it's not commercial, but not necessarily just commercial. This is real estate markets. In general, we're probably talking more about homes. And it fits to what Michelle is talking about. London, irrespective of what happens with Brexit, is still that destination for education, healthcare, um, governance, all the things that have been mentioned. So you look at markets like Los Angeles is up 2.5% through the first half of the year. Sydney is up 47 Frankfurt is up, I think, 3.5%. So you're seeing stability issues being very necessary for families as they move around the world. The second point of that is as families are more involved in global business, they're moving members of their family to different destination points. And it is not as many places as you can see. Switzerland is obviously one. 
in Asia, right, which I think in any global business, you've got to have a lens on Asia. Um, you know, you're looking at Singapore. Michelle mentioned the haze, but you've got governance, uh, great healthcare. We've seen that through COVID. Uh, you've got a very strong education system. And Hong Kong with, it, with its own individual geopolitical uh, uncertainty going forward. So, so all of these factors weigh in. And I don't think we've seen a slowdown at all in the discussion around real estate uh, and around where that goes. And I know that was an important thing for you, Louise, to get out. To, to Nigel's point, what that means for commercial real estate, I think, is divided in two buckets. Those that actually currently own and are, are, are owners of portfolios, um, we've got to see you know, what the transition is and those that are looking to deploy capital. But again, uh, you look at the money center cities like London, like New York, like Frankfurt, Berlin, that have green areas, that have hospital systems, that have education systems, you will continue to see a draw. And one other sort of final factor to that is one of the incredible things, not just in the United States, but in Europe as well, is the surge of new businesses, some around healthcare, some around logistics, some obviously in procurement for the online business. Some of those businesses may be done from home, but some of those businesses say, we're a new startup, we're 20 people, we need that real estate space. So, you know, there is this argument too. I was more making the point that families are having those conversations and they definitely haven't slowed down. I'm seeing a lot of inquiries and a lot of uh, reports of comparing citizenship programs and uh, residents and I think people are sitting back, going in circle back to our conversation earlier, to see what are the government's uh, approaches of recouping uh, money from, uh, from this. And these are uh, it's throughout the world. So clients are sitting tight, families are sitting tight, also because family have been impacted by the fact that they couldn't move. I had situations where I had to change the status from a tax point of view of people because they've been locked in somewhere in the wrong place and carrying on dealing with their business in a different place and, and has brought up a, a, a lot of very interesting uh, work for, for us because of a lot of international tax problems. But uh, I think the, uh, in the end of the day, and actually I saw much more of this during the election when there was a danger of a different government going in, there were people really not very happy and uh, trying to see where they could go. But uh, the, I think the, 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 the fundamental point is that people are gearing up. But when you look around the world and you sit down with clients, I agree, it is that the UK is still very much an attractive, solid proposition. And uh, unless you want to go, because nowadays if you move, you need to leave there and you have to stay there. The days where you popped in, bought a property and never went there, they're no longer there because of the way transparency of the world happens. So you tell a client, if you want to go and buy yourself a citizenship in Solusha, you got to stay in Solusha. <laughs> you got to live there for over six months a year. So the conversation is very different from mm. what it used to be uh, a few years back. I don't know if that is your experience. Uh, Families have to be realistic about what they want to achieve, what they want to do business-like and where they actually want to live. Just in terms of, of looking ahead, that this issue of people getting essentially trapped in places and locked down in places, um, the, the cessation of business travel, how has this changed the way that, that private banks and wealth managers themselves manage their staff? And are people, as they're looking ahead to Plan B, thinking about how they actually use their staff and the extent to which their staff will travel, how they will structure the business itself. There must be conversations going on as to change within the business itself. 
we definitely are looking at this incredibly closely. But I think as an, as an industry, it comes down to people. And this, this goes, goes to, to everybody. At the beginning of the crisis, there were certain people that even before it was widespread in Europe and the US that said, look, I'm not feeling great about this virus out there. Do you mind if we don't meet in person? Which may have felt odd because you, it's such a people business that we're in and you're often sitting in somebody's home, somebody's office, in your own office, having a very confidential uh, bilateral conversation. That, that has changed enormously um, over these six months that we're very comfortable now. And we're, we're having a extremely engaging discussion uh, in six or seven different places, um, mainly around Europe, but it seems very normal now. This would not have maybe seemed normal in November of 2019 and definitely not in, in 2015. We would have thought, oh, that's odd that we're doing that. Why are we not in a big hotel uh, in a conference? Um, when it comes down to the bilateral, the definite, I think there will be definitely be a sense of some of those extremely emotional and important discussions will be done face-to-face probably not in a public area um, to start with and in, in more private areas when people get comfortable. Um, but it's, it's definitely going to change um, the essence. What won't change, though, is the fact that you have to be reactive to clients. And if clients want to see you in person, we will make sure they're comfortable and we're comfortable. Um, uh, I think that the, the whole issue of travel um, is going to be something that uh, outside of the banking business is everybody is ascertaining on a, you know, can you do your sales presentation uh, digitally? Do you not have to fly for that one meeting? Inside companies doing operating meetings, regularly scheduled um, annual general meetings for companies, all those sorts of things are on people's minds. But I will say this, I think we all have uh, an insatiable appetite, uh, those people that like to engage to be with people. And I think you'll find as things open up, um, you'll, you'll, you'll have a, a demand there. Is it the same demand as we had back in 2020, February? Don't know. But if you look at many other industries that have come back online, we're back to within five or seven percent of, um, uh, of, of activity in many other sectors, obviously not hotels and travel at the moment, but in other sectors. So that would be my, my I think the, 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 main, uh, the main change for me, I mean, two things. One is on the how we managed our organization during that period. I think we all, and I, I don't see many uh, negative examples, we all manage you know, incredible efficiency, the continuity of the business. So uh, bringing, as Andrew was saying, uh, bringing the whole bank for me uh, in a uh, in few weeks from 100% people at, in the office to 5% of the people in the office was, well, I would say, a, a, an excellent surprise. And it means that continuity of the business has been totally assured. The next stage in terms of organization is, is the real mobility, of, uh, which is not something common in our banking industry in particular. It was not the case. We were meeting clients at their home, but the organization has never been very mobile base or home office base. So we have to manage and succeed in bringing a continuity plan into a global organization. And that is the key topic today because we are expected on this by, by our staff who have now a conscious of, of being able to work at home. I think for some people, a bit of fear to go back in uh, public places. Good reasons to say that uh, they are more efficient uh, by staying at home because they have less tra- transport and things. So so we must face now a new, a new challenge to bring the organizations into something a bit new for this kind of relatively conservative industry we are. Uh, and the next thing which is a big challenge is on the client interaction, as Andrew was saying. I think that the, the, big, big, the big surprise is that, you know, average clients in the, our industry are not young. 
that we all, all hope that they will be young. But let's say average age in this industry is, a, is tra traditionally not so young and not so used to interact with people on, let's say, uh, this, the basis we have been interacting with them in the last few weeks or a few months, which means that now they expect more. They have been used to, and even older generation are now very familiar with, uh, with Zoom, WebEx, uh, Skype, and so on. And this is clearly a, bit, a, a challenge in the way to interact. It will not replace face-to-face -face because we, we, we need that and people want. And sometimes I'm very surprised to see these days people who are even, I would say, taking a risk to, go, to come to our office just to, to, to see us again. And this is something very, very positive and it will stay. But the percentage of the interaction, which is a significant portion of the interaction, will be uh, now on a, on a remote basis. And this is an opportunity, perhaps, to create a new type of interaction with the clients. That's what we tried during the crisis. It worked well. Now it, you, we need to put that into a, com a constant basis. And Michelle, one thing that we're seeing, and, and that's what certainly we're seeing through discussions with our clients, is the ease of access to bring our specialists into the meetings. So before, because you know, the, you know, the specialists or you know, people were often traveling around and we've all got this time that's come back in our diary because we don't have the flights or the travel or whatever is from there. So we've actually found using the technology is a great way of actually getting some of our specialists onto calls and give, them, give our clients access to specialists yeah. in a manner that I don't think we will ever change from. So it could be that we're the ones who are doing the face-to-face -face meeting in their office or in their front room in, in, in their house but then you have one of your subject matter experts dialing in from wherever, and we just accept now far more readily this interface of, over some digital medium. And, and I think the next evolution will be real and digital together. Same thing there where you can bring in a tax and an investment expert all on the Zoom. Um, yes. we, we, we suddenly found dramatic change very, very quickly in so much as all of a sudden it was acceptable to a client, so perhaps a younger age group than Michelle described there, and more acceptable to have a Zoom all of a sudden. So we were able to do more meetings with clients. Um, yeah. My life changed totally. I mean, I was doing 120 flights minimum a year for 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, my best my best year or my worst is 200 flights in a year so i mean i'm sure some of you kind of identify with that and all of a sudden i'm um, on zoom and, and you think i'd have more time but i'd actually say from a management point of view it's harder so you know certainly i didn't have extra time in lockdown it was the opposite everybody wanted to talk to me there were more whatsapps and whatsapp changed everything for me because all of a sudden it wasn't an email that perhaps a pa could pick up on all of a sudden i'm getting whatsapps from everybody all over the world that are right on your phone and you have to deal with so as a manager i found dealing with lots of companies all over the world it was actually busier much much busier than perhaps previously it was uh, i'd actually say i don't think it's going to go back so i kind of alluded to it a bit earlier so perhaps i'm more extreme than the other panelists i, I don't know i think that there's going to be at least 20 percent that don't go back to offices that previously were working there so you know even if you think that's a 20 percent change in one year that's massive so all of a sudden you've got a workplace revolution if you want to call it that changes things changes investment changes the way we work and lots of our advisors prefer to work remotely that changes the business for us dramatically in the last few days we started uh, we, we we have told our staff if you want to go back for your mental health 
you can go back. And uh, us partners are trying to be in to support uh, and create uh, an office uh, environment, but not more than 30%. We're doing what everybody else is doing. We told everyone, you don't have to come if you don't want to, but we're there if you want to. And it is quite extraordinary how many people are coming into the office because they are feeling they are either bored or they're feeling they want to be back together. So uh, I think there are two aspects. I think the flight for one day in New York and back for a meeting is gone because actually it's not going to look good, even if you wanted to do it. And because now you can do Zoom. And I think from a... Uh, ESG, you don't want to be seen the one that sort of does that. Uh, but I think the, there's, there's, I agree there's going to be traveling and there's going to be wanting to be together because the personal impact is never going to be the same. This is good, but not that good. And I, I agree, it's going to be a mix. I think going forward, we're going to have people... Uh, meetings with clients. I have never spoken with Asia so much. I don't know why I didn't use Zoom before. Because yeah. now you know, I start with Asia, then I've got Europe, then I've got the US, and then I've got uh, Australia New Zealand. It's a no-brainer. I have no time. I find that if I don't exercise every day, I think I will grow into a chair because you're sitting here and everybody call, constantly calls you or WhatsApp you. But I just think that as an employer of 900 people, which is much less than you do, but to have a company's ethos, a company feeling, uh, to be, have an identity and the people buying into your business, we have got to have a business where we are in the office somehow. So it's going to be really interesting how we're going to be able to have these identities that differentiate the different advisors and ourselves get our staff to be part of our team, make them loved and supported, and then be able to work from home. It was exactly what, what I was saying at the beginning is on this side. I think the, the creation of a new company uh, organization and a company, uh, the values and so on have to be, when, when you are Google, it's easy because, because it was, you were born like this. I think organizations like ours who are, big organizations, big uh, global banks or global uh, uh, firms, uh, I think they have not, they, we were not born like this. We were born with, uh, with the meetings, the interaction, and growing and turning our organization into something which is really adapted for all the old organizations like this is a, is a challenge, and that's where we are now. But it's, uh, that's where the clients are expecting us now, so that's where we should be. Yeah, I, the only extension on that would be that we have to take, uh, we're all in the advisory business and, and being the, the trusted advisors to these you know, wonderful families uh, that, that we all look after, they also have businesses, right? And I think that's going to be an extension of the advisory and things that we're collectively learning and we can learn from our clients as well um, about all of these changes that happen. I think uh, yeah, Beatrice mentioned mental health, right? Mental health, physical health, the, the environmental issues of what is the optics of 200 flights a year with all due respect to Nigel, right? What are the optics of what that is really doing and were they necessary, right? Um, now is 
his own mental health may be subjected to 24-hour Zooms. Um, but uh, but that's, I've definitely noticed in dialogue with clients that there is a lot of, you know, what do I do about my own business? How do I factor in, um, you know, returning to the office? How do I factor in uh, how I'm going to be planning things going forward? I've just made an acquisition in country X. Should I be visiting it or can I do it by Zoom? And, and those are really, I think we're all saying very similar things. These are really important things as we collectively make it more efficient. Um, and learn from each other. The tech firms have always been leaders in these areas, but I think you find very innovative ideas that you want to share with others from, uh, from the own client base. It's whether you can build a relationship with the client via Zoom, isn't it? You know, there's probably more touch points needed. I'm not so sure, Beatrice. I think you can. I just think you need to have more touch points. Um, same thing as you're managing. Do you, you know, can you build a relationship? Can you create an atmosphere? Can I create an atmosphere on this panel? Can I? Yeah, not as good as if I'm in the room, but can I? Yeah, mm. I think I can to some level. I mean, it's interesting, and, and obviously none of us know the answer. We've, yeah. we've, all, we've all got to work super hard at it over the next few years and get very good at it because I don't want to be a CEO that was good pre-COVID and uh, not good post-COVID. There's going to be a combination of physical and... Uh, I agree, yeah, totally. totally. But I've got to get good at better at using this so that I can communicate effectively and build that atmosphere that you talked about, that team spirit that you talked about. I've got to be able to do that. Otherwise, I used to be good. Yes. Yeah, Greg mentioned before about the combination of reality and virtual, let's say. I think that was often odd if you had an important meeting in a boardroom and you, you'd telepresent somebody in. It was like quite strange to see yeah, somebody true. on the screen. Yeah. That, that is definitely the new normal. Um, and you'll have the majority of meetings with some combination, if not all of it done, um, particularly with issues around how many people are actually sitting in a meeting. Right, you you will have people that say I'll come, but I only want to see two people in the room, and there's specific rules country by country uh, on how many people can be in a physical presence. To you, you're a global head, so it must have been really, uh, in, you know, difficult for you to just to make sure. It is, but 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 it's been easier. Back to the point that yeah, you know, we've all been saying yeah, you know, get you know, doing a call with somebody in Australia is one heck of a sight easier than you know, the three or four days it would take you, you know, to physically get there and, and find the time to do the meeting. Far more interaction has gone on because of this. And I think we've met, yeah, as, as somebody who's, you know, who's tasked with doing this, have they been able to move things a lot quicker? Now, there's then a point as to you can move things, but how do you build things and sustain things? Because then yeah, that's where we have become used to that human interaction and it's how we cope with that change from there and i think it will be back to the point that andrew was saying and yes we were just saying we're, we're in together i don't see a lot of, uh, of good news for airline industry and to, and i think we are uh, we are all saying the same thing which is extreme bad news uh, for long-term prospects for so, so, so back to andrew's point at the beginning you need diversification but it needs to be smart diversification <laughs> yeah well this was maybe how we wanted to to start to sort of wrap things up we've talked a lot about the changes that are taking place and the question is what will the new world look like that we're moving into with that in mind what should people be investing in we've covered esg and obviously there's a huge appetite for that but in order to embrace this new world that we're describing what should you be looking at there's definitely a, an array of issues in the alternatives world of both private equity uh, and structures around that. Um, the private markets are staying private for longer. 
Um, so there's there's definitely that that has been a big interest and this innovation and change and taking advantage of this crisis we've been through is, a, is an important thing but that comes with the diversification aspect you can't have all of your portfolio and illiquid assets um, with a, a, a determination of when they may become public I think the other thing is is looking across the globe this tech issue right has been uh, very prevalent in the US and has been the dominant there to some extent to the UK but in tech like Europe Right? We've seen less ability to, to take advantage of these markets. And then you go out to Asia and you see, well, where have the Asian markets recovered? Never recovered in the tech areas, right? Um, now, some of that may last for a period of time. Some of that will, will go back into the, what we've had last week in the reflection. Again, it comes down to diversification. What I will say about the, the emerging markets, though, just remember that China and Russia are kind of exempted from that. So they're going to go you know, outside the, the political um, volatility you'll see. And then you'll look at core uh, underlying company growth. And China has got its, its, its own positioning in tech. Uh, we can stay out of the politics of that. But when you look further afield, I think one has to be very, very careful, um, particularly in the effects. Um, if you look at places in, in the rest of the emerging world where there's been a COVID issue and a, and a pol- political issue, it's obviously meant that there's been difficulty in the investment arena. So, you know, the U.S. has had a preponderance of the tech and, and med tech issues. As those areas grow in other parts of the world, that's where we'll be looking to diversify um, and we'll be looking more and more in the alternative space. Maybe to, to complement this, I fully agree. I think the ESG is an environment uh, for all the investment world. So it means that whichever area you invest into, either the typical bonds and, and shares, but also real assets. I think that the ESG component would be very key. And we see, for example, now even in real estate, clearly there is a, there is a premium for uh, eco-friendly real estate, uh, uh, all these things that take into account the new trends. And this is, a, I think it's a global environment. But from a pure investment point of view, we enter in, in a world where there is no yield on the, on the let's say, on the, Typical government bonds and things, there is zero yield or negative. So the safety has a price. And on the other side, uh, I think you have all the shares and many sectors who are, uh, are already very well priced. We have seen that on technology with some corrections. And the other ones are, as we said before, long-term hits by what is happening. The airlines are virtual bankrupt, uh, tourism has been hit, and so on. So... There are not that many opportunities in the traditional area of investment. Uh, and that's why we, we need, uh, and I think that's what people are doing now, we need to look for alternative or real assets where you will find the real long-term yield. And you need for that to accept a certain level of, of illiquidity of your investment, which is new as well. Uh, so that's where diversification is even more important than it is in the, in the traditional investment process. Because when you go into a liquid side, the risks are, are definitely much higher. So uh, I think diversification would remain the key. ESG would be the global framework of any kind of investments. And the trend to real assets, uh, including uh, real estate, a certain kind of real estate, including uh, uh, alternative, in, alternative type of investment or uh, infrastructure, which would be huge investments from the governments, uh, including this type of, uh, of kind of alternative to the traditional investment world will be the request, and that's where we must build this kind of long-term strategic asset allocation for our clients. 
It comes from an investment point of view, but all I know is that our client will need really, really specific and specialist advice in all fields. And uh, so they need really good bankers, really good advisors, really good accountants, really good everybody, very specialist. And also we all need to work very well together as a team for each big client because they will need us being coordinated, work well, make plans, change, be flexible, and we need to communicate, whether virtually or physically, I don't know, but I think is becoming so complex that we'll all need to collaborate properly, I think. Yeah, 100% with everybody there. Smart diversification was the phrase there that I used earlier. Um, you need to be looking at the trends where they are. Some some things I don't think are going to recover. So we've, we've kind of mentioned airlines in there. There may be some sort of recovery, but I don't think it's going back to where it was, in my opinion. So, you know, you, you see those trends of technology, infrastructure, healthcare. It still needs to be diversified, however, but they're strong trends. So, it's diversifying, making sure that you've got exposure to the right areas. And to take Beatrice's point, it's vital that in this world you have good fund managers, you have good advisors looking after you, which, which I guess is an advantage for us in some ways because just buying an ETF doesn't make it anymore for me. Um, you know, this do-it-yourself financial services, I think really the world's changed and that actually means that people do need good advice and they need good people like JP. Morgan to be making sure that the money's being managed and, and managed effectively to actually be in the right sectors and limit the exposure to the wrong sectors. And I think it is about professionalisation and recognising where digital will make a difference, but re- recognising where you, know, you need that you know, bespoke approach as to what you need to do. And that's what you know, I think the, the five of us on this call you know, are all hopefully advocating and you know, demonstrating that we can do that for our clients. So I'd just like to thank everybody very much for a very stimulating and interesting discussion. Thanks very much.